Good morning, everyone. At work, that's kind of what I do, and I realize that you all know me, most of you, but you have no idea what I do. I mean, most people don't even know what I do for a living, so this is my opportunity um, to talk about my occupation for a moment. I work for an association of nurseries and growers and landscapers, and we host large trade shows in Florida and internationally, and we host education and training and certification opportunities. I'm the director of IT, so I'm a steward of the association's resources, which includes budgeting and purchasing. Now, we have someone on staff who works in the trade show booth sales. Let's call him uh, Billy. Billy's computer was purchased prior to COVID when budgets were less constrained, so we were able to splurge on something with plenty of power, but small enough and easy for him to carry around. So we got a Microsoft Surface. It's only about this big, but it does everything. Um, Billy spends most of his time uh, traveling and working remotely, so it suited his needs, and it was a wise purchase for the time. So far, this is an example of stewardship decision-making. But there's more to this story that struck me as a picture of stewardship and Christ's return. Recently, the fan in Billy's surface stopped running. Now, to Billy, that doesn't mean much, other than the computer runs a little more quietly. But the fan is essential. Now, with most computers or laptops, I would simply take it apart, install a new $6 fan, and be done with it. But I don't have the special tools required to deglue the glass screen and take apart the surface. And purchasing the tools or sending it out for repair are not cost-effective and not good stewardship. I let Billy know that eventually the processor and the computer will overheat, the operating system will crash, the video card will display the blue screen of death, and any file saved on that surface will be unrecoverable. So I ordered him a new computer, but with our recent budget cuts, Billy has to settle for a standard laptop, like everybody else gets. I have his new laptop in my office. It's all configured for him. It has his apps, his OneDrive, his SharePoint documents, email, etc. It's all set up and ready to go. But Billy wants to keep using his Surface until it dies. Because it's just so much more powerful and portable than his new laptop. So Billy now stores all his, his files in the cloud, in his OneDrive, instead of on the Surface. And I regularly boot up his new laptop, which is in my office, and run software updates just to make sure it's ready to be rolled out at any moment. So we wait. The surface may die at a trade show or at a teaching event or while he's presenting at a meeting. We don't know the day or hour that surface will fail, but we are ready. Oh, wait, what? Um, uh, well, I'm ready because I have my notes. In case, in case the computer fails or something like that. No. We're, a series, we're in a series on the end times. And Paul King started us off last week with Jesus is coming. I hope we all are in agreement of that. So are we ready? Some people get a little carried away with all the details of the pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib views. And others get carried away with looking out for definite signs of Christ's return to the extent of trying to pinpoint the exact date of his return. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 
36 through 39. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they were oblivious until the flood came and swept them away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Oh, I'll be reading everything from the Berean Standard Translation, mainly because I have a friend who really likes that. that uh. In Matthew 24... Four through eight. Jesus answers, See to it that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and I will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, All of these are the beginning of birth pains. Many of these things are happening in the world today, and they indicate that we are getting closer to the return of Christ. The nation of Israel, resurrected from non-existence 75 years ago, sets the stage for end-time events, the recent waves of floods and earthquakes all over the world, the emergence of new diseases like HIV, bird flu, SARS, MERS, covid Besides these, there's many other signs that the Lord Jesus will return soon. But the most telling sign of all is the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is already happening today. Missionaries are sharing the gospel all over the world and translating the good news to so many people groups in their native tongues. While this news ought to excite us, it does present a matter of concern. Are we ready for the Lord's coming? What should we do now if we know that Christ may come soon? Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to everyone. It instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live sensible, upright, and godly lives in the present age, as we await the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some of the best guidelines for living in anticipation of Christ's coming can be found in the parables that Jesus told about this subject. This morning, we'll look at two parables in Matthew 25. The parable of the wise and foolish maidens and the parable of the wise and foolish servants. The beginning in Matthew 25, yours may say parable of ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take along extra oil. But the wise ones took oil in flasks, along with their lamps. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, said the wise ones, 
or there may not be enough for both of us and you. For both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy it, the bridegroom arrived. Those who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins arrived and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. (coughs) Jesus' return is described as a bridegroom arriving for three reasons. Christ's return is like a wedding day. Marriage aptly portrays the close relationship that exists between Christ and his church. God has chosen the marriage relationship to portray our bond with him. Christ is the husband or groom, and the church is the wife or bride of Christ. And the love and commitment between Christ and the church is very much like the material love and commitment that exists between bride and groom. John tells us in Revelation 19.9, Then the angel told me to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Marriage is an event that is marked by happiness and joy. No happiness on the wedding day can be greater than that of the bride and the groom where the ones join together as man and wife. For this is the day they had been waiting and longing for. In the same way, we too should be earnestly expecting and waiting for the happy day when our Lord Jesus Christ will come. The day of Christ's return will be our wedding day, the day when we will be forever in the presence of our beloved Redeemer, and we will enter into the joy of our Lord. Jesus' return involves our making preparations. We are all aware of the elaborate preparations that go into a wedding. Selecting the bridal gown, bridesmaid dresses, tuxedos, choosing the wedding party, preparing the guest list, invitations and programs, picking out the venue, rings, cake, flowers, photographer, planning the wedding reception and the honeymoon. You're feeling better now? For Christian couples, the most important preparation for marriage is the spiritual preparation. The bride and groom need to learn the biblical principles for having a God-centered marriage. They need to spend time in prayer and commit themselves to the vows they will make to each other before the Lord. For those who do not prepare themselves adequately for marriage will suffer. Useful lessons of the parable of the ten virgins. The imminent return of Christ is just like a marriage in this particular aspect. We must make good preparations for it. The parable was told by Jesus in order to emphasize how important it is to be fully prepared for his return, trusting in him alone for salvation and living out our faith. Ancient Jewish wedding celebrations took place in the bridegroom's home. It was customary for the bridegroom to fetch his bride from her father's house and bring her to his home in a grand wedding procession. This procedure could be quite long and was well known to have potential delays. The high point of the whole wedding was when the bridegroom finally arrived with the bride to his home for the big marriage feast. A welcoming party awaited their arrival with lamps lighting the way and would have the privilege of joining the couple in their joyful marriage feast inside the house. It was 
such a feast that Christ performed his first recorded miracle in the Bible, turning water to wine. Do not wait until it is too late to prepare for Christ's coming. Verses 8 through 12. This is the reason that we learn from the five foolish versions. When the bridegroom arrives, they were unprepared to meet him. And the urgent warning from the parable in verse 13. This urgent warning is found in the last verse of the parable, which therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Jesus previously informed us that his coming will take place unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Do not let that warning go unheeded. Act upon it now. Christ may come at any time. Don't imagine that Jesus will not come for another five or ten years. The Bible says that no man knows the hour or day of our Lord's return. We need to come to him before he comes. Believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then, live a good life in stewardship to him. Part of being ready is being a good steward of what God has entrusted us with. Jesus gave us a picture in the next parable of the talents. Verse 14. For it, the kingdom of heaven, is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his possessions. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey. The servants who had received the five talent went at once and put the work put them to work and gained five more. Likewise, the one with the two talents gained two more. But the servant who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. The servant who had received five talents came and presented five more. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The servant who had received two talents also came and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Finally, the servant who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid. So I went out and hid your talent in the ground. You see, you have what belongs to you. You wicked, lazy servant, replied his master. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Then you should have deposited the money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received it back with interest. (coughs) Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who will, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw that worthless servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Strong stuff. I have to point my finger back at me 
on a lot of that. So what is stewardship? I found three definitions. Um, the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Stewardship involves the planning and management of resources. And dictionary.com. A person who acts as the surrogate of another, adding that they are responsible for overseeing and protecting of something considered worth caring for and preserving. Now the term surrogate particularly stands out here. In many ways, as a Christian, we are God's surrogates in, to, and for his creation. In other words, we are acting on behalf of God when we interact with the world around us. Well, what about biblical stewardship? What does it look like to practice stewardship from a biblical perspective? The New Testament word for stewardship comes from the Greek word oikonomos. hope I didn't butcher that. Which means the manager of the affairs of a household. In other words, it's doing work. The guardianship position is shown throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Bible stewardship is a responsibility, a duty. Dare I say, works. For Christians, we are to impact, care, and utilize and manage the affairs of God's creation in whatever he brings us into contact with. Biblical stewardship involves giving our time, our talents, our resources. And when I say our, the truth is, it's all his anyway. That's why being good stewards is such a critical part of the Christian lifestyle. Time. God has given us time. Use it to serve him. Our talents. God has given us innate abilities and spiritual gifts. Use them to serve his purposes. Resources. God has given us, or lent us some of his, since it's not ours, money and earthly materials. Use them and manage them to further his kingdom. Now, fruits of stewardship. Many of the results of being good stewards are tangible. For example, helping the helpless, giving offerings, caring for the earth, making use of your time wisely, using your abilities or spiritual gifts in ministry, etc. However, there are also instances where the act of Christian stewardship creates the results on the inside. For example, being a good steward will help us shed the idea that we own things. Mold us into Christ-like servants, increase our willingness and ability to help others, and point us to God in his example. Here are a few questions we can ask ourselves to better gauge how well we're operating as stewards. How does, how does being a good steward for the Lord mature us in our walk? Is being a good steward making you more responsible Christ-like? Is it increasing your sense of accountability to the Lord? Do you find yourself more willing or eager to serve others? R.C. Sproul said, fundamentally, stewardship is about exercising our God-given dominion over his creation, reflecting the image of our creator, God, in his care, responsibility, maintenance, protection, and beautification of his creation. Are we reflecting the image of our creator as stewards of his creation? Does our stewardship help others in need? John Wesley said, Do you not know that God has entrusted you with that money, 
all above what buys the necessities for you and your families, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and indeed as far as it will go, to relieve the wants of all mankind? How can you, how dare you, defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? It is our stewardship, is our stewardship separating us from our possessions and making it easier for us to help those in need? Does our stewardship constantly point us to Jesus Christ? Being a good steward shouldn't make us think that we are the ones in charge being benevolent. Biblical stewardship is designed, is developed with a close, ever-deepening relationship with our Lord, who is very present and active in his creation around and through us, his stewards. So let's consider examples of stewardship in the Bible. Stewardship started with Adam and Eve. The first few chapters of Genesis revolve around stewardship. In Genesis 1.26 it reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth itself, every creature that crawls upon it. However, even before that, Genesis established the absolute truth that God created everything. Any righteous authority within creation is rooted in the Creator. In other words, everything in creation is under God. And therefore, any authority you have comes to you via the Lord, to you through your position as a steward. Joseph was a steward more than once. The most practical version of God-given guardianship that we see in the Bible comes from Joseph, who served as a steward both in Potiphar's house and as the Pharaoh's right-hand man over the nation of Egypt. Throughout his life, Joseph constantly showed what it takes to care for a master's possessions. He helped Potiphar's household thrive, and he exercised self-control in temptation. When he was promoted to second in command of the whole nation, he did his best to protect the pharaoh's threatened resources while saving countless lives, feeding multitudes during the famine that God prophesied through him. King David. David's life shows many examples of servanthood and stewardship. Most of the time in his leadership, it provides us an example of a good steward who looked to God for guidance. However, David had a faith relapse as a steward. And in 1 Chronicles chapters 21, David insisted on taking a census of the nation of Israel, even though he knew God didn't want him to. Eventually, God punished him for his lack of faith and nearly destroyed Jerusalem. While David repented, the episode shows us that even the best stewards can act out of their own fear or failure. David was afraid that Israel was not strong enough to protect itself instead of trusting in the Lord to protect them. David took matters into his own hands and ultimately he let that fear drive his actions instead of trusting and obeying the Lord as a good steward should. King Hezekiah, and I'm going to pick on another good king, but Hezekiah wasted 15 years We read in 2 Kings 20 that Hezekiah had become mortally ill and would soon die. 
And he prayed to God. And through Isaiah the prophet, God told Hezekiah that he would extend his life 15 years. But what did Hezekiah do with that gift of time that God had given him? Well, a couple things recorded. He bragged to the Babylonians about all the riches God had given him. And he fathered a son named Manasseh, arguably the worst king in Judah's history. Other than that, it even says, other than that, nothing is written about his works. Not a very wise steward of the extra 15 years that God gave him. Another example of stewardship is in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, known as the Great Commission. Jesus Christ tells his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. He also instructs them to baptize and teach those new disciples. This spiritual transference of authority is one of the biggest moments of Christian stewardship in the Bible. Jesus assigns his followers, us, with the task of continuing his work. Of course, the Holy Spirit is sent here to help us with that work. The concept of God-given stewardship comes up multiple times after this too. One example is when Paul refers to himself and Apollos as God's workers in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord has assigned to each his role. I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who makes things grow. He who plants and he who waters are one in purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Are you ready for Christ's return? In the light that Jesus is returning soon, we must trust in him alone and make good use of the limited time, talents, and resources that he has given to us to be good stewards as we wait for his return. When Jesus comes for us, we want to hear the words in the parable of the talents, verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. With a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Thank you.